It really called into question the current model of a lot of Spanish TV. So they're starting at the gutter. La Portada podcast with Simon Hunter and Lily Mayers. We are here to read all of the Spanish news so that you don't have to. It's crazy. I've just been watching the Spanish media ecosystem fall apart at the seams. Delete me talking about my wife. Yeah. I just want to talk about the, all the optics. Let's talk the drama, let's talk the drama. <laughs> my apologies to any drunk Brits out there who may have been offended. Our Twitter thread is cursed. I mean, yeah, go back and listen to our coverage last no, no, week. Don't, don't. <laughs> ¿Listos? Sí. Vamos allá. Hello, welcome to La Portada. My name is Lily Mayers. I'm an Australian multi-platform news journalist, and I'm here as the newbie Spaniard. I have Spanish heritage and I've lived in Madrid for two years and still my knowledge of Spain only scratches the surface. So I'm going to be learning how this beautiful country works and doesn't work right along with you. Steering the ship is my co-host Simon Hunter. He's called Madrid home for more than 20 years. Many of those he's spent working as editor of El País English and more recently he's the freelance Brit expert you may have noticed on multiple TV roundtables and debates. La Portada for our non-Spanish-speaking listeners means the cover or the front page, and that's what we hope to give you, a front-page look at what's happening in Spain right now. Let us drown out the noise and give you the key information so you can experience Spain at a deeper level. On today's show, we'll be looking at some college boys' sexist taunts, a train crash trial, and we speak with one of Spain's most prominent photographers, Santi Palacios, who's launching an exciting new project. Before we get into that, Simon, how are you going? I am very well, thank you, Lily. Thank you very much for that introduction. It was a very comprehensive little guide to what we do here <laughs> at the uh, podcast. The first thing I would like to do is to invite you to support us at Patreon. Uh, many people, many listeners have already signed up. Um, if you support us on Patreon, you will get the podcast a couple of days early. It will be out on Friday rather than on Sunday. And you will also get to enjoy our new section, which we are calling Spanta, which is a little bonus uh, bit of uh, chat that we're going to put at the end. This week on our first uh, edition of Spanta, I shall be telling the story about how going on the Spanish telly cost me 11,000 euros and you may be saying why would I want to know about that because I'm not planning on going on the telly that is a good point but <laughs> trust me this is a story that could uh, apply to you some good advice that I'm going to impart uh, if you are living and working in Spain so head over to our Patreon it's uh, patreon.com forward slash la portada pod like all the rest of our socials remember all we are asking for from our supporters is the cost of a relax so please head over to our Patreon page now and lend us your support so that we can continue with the podcast. Also, we got some really lovely feedback from last week's show. Thank you to everyone who got in touch. Uh, in particular, this one caught my eye. A tweet from Matt Gardner uh, on Twitter. He said, love to hear La Portada pod back. He said, you may want to explain the meaning of giddy. For those who don't know, I didn't know until I was with a fellow giddy a few weeks ago and he explained it to me. And now chatting with Matt, we realised that, that yeah, what he was talking about was giddy, which is probably my pronunciation. I was doing uh, some simultaneous translation one time at uh, the other place and I had to, to, I had to say the, uh, the uh, salvaguarda 
which is the backstop. It was all about Brexit. It was a live oh, debate right, in the right. columns in the, in the House of Commons, and it was uh, then Prime Minister, then UK Prime Minister uh, Theresa May talking, and all the guys watching the comments coming on the Facebook feed, and everyone's like, "He sounds like he's saying salvaguarda," which would pretty much translate to save the slut oh, <laughs> so Jesus. apologies for that Matt that's probably my that's probably my trans- that's probably my pronunciation but Giri. it is Giri Giri G-U-I-R-I which is a, an affectionate term I would say that Spaniards have for, depends uh, yeah depends how I think it is well it can be used aggressively or it can be used very affectionately and we have definitely taken ownership of it I think yeah if you don't know what it is you are one <laughs> <laughs> thank you Connor Connor is here in the back background in case you hadn't noticed already uh, and also I had a very nice message from Michael Fergus McGrath he said very good and un- indeed unusually good cheeky Michael uh, wrote uh, he, about last week's podcast he said please remember we are not all Brits which is obviously very true we know that we've got lots of English speakers especially our friends out in Oregon <laughs> my god shout out to the Oregon listeners yeah, we can Love. see where, we can see where people are subscribing and where people are listening, and we've suddenly got this big bloom of listeners in Oregon. So Explain I'm not yourselves. Yeah. <laughs> Get in touch. Let us know what's going on there. Uh, Michael also said, "I would like a slightly na- larger news headlines plus a quick newspaper review. What each paper is, focus, current week, emphasis." Uh, and he says, "P.S. I'm off to Patreon." So thank you very much for that, Michael. And yeah, that's a good idea. We should do that one week. We should look at the uh, Spanish newspapers, break them all down, mm. tell you where they are on the political spectrum. For now, let's get into the news. This week, a university halls of residence in Madrid has announced that it will be expelling several male students after a video went viral of an organised chant directed at the female residence opposite. In the video, which was shot late on Sunday night, a lone figure is seen silhouetted in a window of the tower block and he is then heard to shout. All right, get your, get your beat machine ready, mm. <laughs> Lily. Whores, come out of your burrows like rabbits. You're all fucking nymphomaniacs. I promise you that you are all going to fuck in the bullring. He then shouts, let's go, auja, which is in reference to the name of this halls of residence, the Colegio Mayor Elias Auja. And at that moment, the blinds of the rest of the windows in the apartment block shoot up to reveal the silhouettes of more than 100 male students who all start to cheer and to whistle. Like gorillas, as one commentator. Very choreographed. The video spread like wildfire online, and it has been practically all the media has been talking about in Spain since then. So, Lily, what's your take on this one? Well, not a proud day for Spain with this one, or proud week, really. The video did cause mass outrage. It quickly went viral, as you said, and it's it's been, yeah, on circulation constantly this week. Many politicians came out and immediately condemned the chants and, and the boys for what they did, including the Prime Minister, who had this to say. Para que demos una respuesta unitaria, amplia, común de rechazo a estos comportamientos machistas, eh, inexplicables, injustificados eh, y absolutamente repugnantes. What he's saying is that all political parties and the media must call out the inexplicable, unjustifiable and absolutely disgusting sexist behaviour. 
For the college's part, they released a statement saying they consider the chants incomprehensible and inadmissible in society and totally against the ideals and the values of their centre. And there have already been repercussions for those involved. Firstly, the college announced several of the students who started the shouting have already been expelled. And the rest, as you say, there was must be more than 100 there, will be forced to participate in gender-based violence awareness courses. The college also say they will be requiring those students to collaborate in charity and volunteering activities. For their part, the female students at Mayor Santa Monica, the college across the way that, you know, that were getting the chance directed at them, said when they were asked by reporters outside their residences that this isn't a big deal, that the two colleges yell these sort of chants at each other fairly regularly and that taken out of context, this is shocking, but it's not meant to intimidate it's more of a tradition or a joke between the two <laughs> colleges. Just a bit of fun. So part of me thinks the media and the politicians have made this into a, a huge, a, maybe a p- bigger story than it was. But even the girl's response is very concerning because if this sort of, you know, language can be so normalised it is a worry. We know that language does inform societal views and respect for women. So I think they were right to be pulled into line, especially when you consider the extra context of the wolf pack attack in 2018 that saw a woman raped by multiple men, including a police officer in Pamplona at the Bull Run. So, yes, I think they were right to be disciplined. And whether they say it was intended to be so offensive or not, it was. And I think it was shocking for everyone to see. Yeah, I mean, let's not forget that this this these uh, this halls of residence is run by a religious order. Mm. I mean, it, it, you know, bigs itself up on its website as it says the spirit and education style are in tune with the current society and the demands of the contemporary world. I mean, it is really really shocking, and the sh- the reaction of the girls, I think, from the Santa Monica College was just as uh, shocking. I mean, they were saying that. Uh, um, one, one of them actually said, well, look, they haven't raped anyone. <laughs> so it's like, oh, well, aren't they showing is, amazing is restraint? Yeah, is exactly. that the That's bar the we're bar, setting? Yeah. Oh, come on, they haven't raped anyone. You put yet uh, <laughs> uh, after what they said. Um, and also a lot of people pointing out that these are the judges, politicians and business leaders mm. of the future because the people that live in this college or halls of residence uh, tend to be, you know, tend to come from money. This is a place that you have to uh, mm. have to pay to be there. Um, also, uh, there was a, another former colleague uh, uh, who was interviewed on the Kadina Ser um, uh, radio network, she said, I heard these chants every day for the two years that I lived there. And it was the Monica Putas thing that they would just shout, the guys would just shout this uh, at the girls. Um, very interesting that all the politicians waded in. Very interesting also that the former leader of the popular party, Pablo Casado, was trending on Twitter the other day because he went there mm. and he wrote some really sexist awful thing in a yearbook and those words uh went viral in the wake of them this story but yeah i i do i do tend to agree with you lily i think this has gone a little bit far um the public prosecutor has opened up an investigation Mm. and just to sort of play devil's advocate here um we all do stupid stuff when we're at university or we're all you know when we're in our formative years i recently was chucking out old old stuff uh, boxes of stuff in my school days and i found some debate that I'd written mm-hmm. I was in a debating society mm. did that and it was really shocking cringe. I mean it was like yeah it was mm. sexist uh, it was uh, homophobic I'm talking about in the mid 90s and obviously you know 
attitudes were different, which obviously you can't say that now. Attitudes, you know, are what they are now. We all know that what they are now, and that's why this is so shocking. But, um, you know, looking back, you kind of, well, yeah, it was a debate. I was writing for a debate, but I wouldn't want anyone to see that. Mm. The problem is that now everything gets recorded, everything can go viral in a second on social media. And I actually, I'm a little bit concerned about the fact that the one of these one of these guys one of these students has been particularly singled out um because this is a chant and a tradition that they've been doing for god knows how many years i mean it's probably decades also what we didn't see was that the girls actually have a response there's mm. a video of the girls responding mm. and they have their own chant which suggests that it is you know a thing that they do um but not that that is to excuse it but no. i think maybe we should be more laying the blame on the actual uh, halls of residence itself and the organization there because they were Allowing. well aware of it mm. yeah exactly they, they fully knew that this happened uh and just to well they said that they'd done something about it but it's only now that this has all come out that they're actually kind of like properly reacting and saying okay you know that we're going to put them on these courses which is which is pretty funny but i i think you know it's great that they're taking action but they're going to have a lot of work to do because what's I'd say what's even more worrying than the video that went viral this week is another one from 2014 where all these male students are doing another chant complete with Nazi salutes and saying Zeke Heil I mean that to me is even more shocking I think to your point about you know worrying about the future of these boys for a mistake that they make at school they have an opportunity to hear to to learn from it and help others learn from it and I think that's the point is that you know, whether they were joking or continuing an archaic tradition or not, they need to recognise that women are dying at the hands of their partners and that men at a, at a crazy rate all around the world in Spain, even with Spain's great measures, you know, for, for, to protect women. It's it, it can't it's not a joke to the people who, you know, who have really suffered. And the, the men, the boys, they have an opportunity here to learn from it. And it's also been interesting to see the sort of silence of the far right. Even even the regional premier of Madrid, uh, Ayuso, she's not said anything to kind of like directly criticise um, the, the, the chants. Uh, and of course, and everyone's been making the same point on, on social media. What if it were MENAS? MENAS is the acronym for the um, unaccompanied. Uh, unaccompanied minors yeah so mostly uh, North African uh, teenagers who uh, end up in uh, in care homes in, in Spain uh, and you know if it what, what, exactly. what would be the reaction if it had been you know th- this had been coming out from a, a, a care home for uh, unaccompanied minors uh, also people pointed to the fact that you know Vox and the far right they're very unhappy about young people being given sexual education but they're not saying anything about this which is you know calling women whores and calling them rabbits and and nymphomaniacs uh it's all pretty it's all pretty um yeah it's all pretty distasteful isn't it Mm. but but very interesting to see um that it got such a big reaction this Mm. way All right, moving on to our second story. On July 24th, 2013, Spain suffered one of its deadliest train derailments. An Alvia high-speed train travelling from Madrid to Ferrol derailed on a bend while going through Santiago de Compostela in the country's northwest. 80 people died and nearly everyone else on the train was injured. The train's own records showed before it crashed it was travelling at twice the speed limit. 
In a call to emergency services, the driver, Francisco José Garzón, was recorded saying, I got distracted and I should have been going at 80 and I was doing 190 kilometers an hour. Court documents showed the driver also took a phone call from a train conductor moments before the crash, and during the call he was given the first of three separate internal warnings. But it was also found that the security systems inside the train or on the rail tracks that could have prevented the human error here weren't activated. Garthon and former Arif safety director Andres Cortabitarte have now been charged with 80 counts of manslaughter by gross professional negligence, 145 offences of injury and one offence of damage. The pair face four years in prison if convicted. So, Simon, what's happened at the trial so far and why has this been such a protracted case? Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, to just say how slowly these things go in the Spanish justice system, to think that it's been nearly 10 years since the accident. And I, I, I have to say right from the start of this, uh, well, you know, right from the accident, very, very quickly, I was working at El País at the time, very, very quickly, the video of the accident leaked. Mm. Then very, very quickly as well, the recordings of uh, the train driver, Francisco Garzón, making that emergency mm. call emerged as well. And you could hear, I mean, he just sounded absolutely devastated right for the first minute. He immediately started talking about the poor passengers, mm. the poor passengers. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you watching this, um, you know, play out, you really have to feel very sorry for um, Garzón mm. um, and to have to wait, this long for it to come to trial is is just unbelievable. Um, so yeah, what do we see this week? Uh, well, it was interesting to see Francisco Garzón make his first statements in the court. He was very tearful. Again, he asked for forgiveness from the victims of the accident. Um, he said, I asked for the victims to forgive me. It was an accident. I couldn't avoid it. Um, interesting that it was the phone call from the conductor on the train that distracted him. According to the uh, rules of the um, state operator, Remfe, he has to take that call. It was a call about... Uh, you know a passenger with disabilities mm. alighting at the next station he told the court this week i lost my bearings with the call i lost my spatial awareness um he also i didn't know this but he denounced the fact that he'd been taken out of hospital mm. and put in the cells because the interior minister was coming to visit the next day um he was obviously seriously injured in the crash he had broken ribs and he had a head wound uh, there's some very famous pictures of him being led along the side of the track with them um, with a, a bleeding head wound um but yeah as you mentioned also on trial is the former security director of uh, Adif. So you've got basically you've got Renfe, which is the trains, and then Adif, which is the uh, infrastructure. He is a real figure of hatred for the um, families, uh, Andres Cortabitarte. Um, in fact, after the first day of the trial on Wednesday, he was confronted by angry relatives of the victims. One of them actually assaulted, assaulted him. One of them actually punched him in the back. Um, They've always been very, the uh, victims, the relatives of the victims have always been very unhappy that uh, Cortabitarte was given another senior role um, after the accident. Uh, he's never spoken publicly about the accident um, and he's denied any responsibility this week in court. But of course, he's accused of not having overseen the proper uh, risk analysis of that uh, curve. I mean, he's obviously his attitude is quite the contrast to what we've heard from the train driver who, um, you know, admitted right from mm. the start he'd gone too far fast around the curve but what basically what his um defense is going to um rest upon is the fact that he was not given enough training he'd only run that route nine times each way um and also of course he is going to argue that the safety 
systems weren't in place and also that there wasn't sufficient uh, s- sufficient signaling um but yeah it's 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 a huge trial there's 110 different lawyers in there um from the 154 different uh, accusations so the you know basically mm-hmm. the um the cases for the uh for the uh, prosecution um so it's it's an incredibly complicated trial. Interestingly, the Solicitor General, who's the legal representation for the state, um, is actually defending Adif, but at the same time trying to po- prosecute Cortabi Darte. It's 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 really really bizarre. Um, and the public prosecutor is involved as well. And the public prosecutor is representing fifty three of the victims who don't have legal representation. So I mean, you, it was it was chaos. All the all the all the lawyers have all got numbers and the judge was trying to was calling out numbers to speak to um, the lawyers at the start of the trial. And it does kind of beg the question, you know, not only how can this take so long, but isn't there a better way of doing this? Mm. Do we need some reforms in the Spanish court system for such a kind of complement, uh, such a, to have such a complicated handling uh, of the case? And also it begs a really, really interesting question. You think about any major tragedy or accident that has happened in Spain in recent years. So I'm thinking about the Spanair crash, which was back in 2011, if I remember rightly, the Valencia metro accident and this train crash. They all end up with these victims associations fighting for justice for years and years and years, um, trying to get someone to face responsibility, trying to get politicians to uh, own up to the blame. And it never happens. And these things just drag on and on and on. And that certainly, to me, suggests that the uh, Spanish authorities just do not handle these investigations properly when there is a major tragedy such as this one. This week's guest is a powerhouse photographer. If you haven't heard his name, you've likely already seen his chilling and often poignant photos covering war zones, migrant crossings and the COVID crisis. They've graced the pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post and all major Spanish newspapers. Earlier this year, he was one of the first people to enter Ukraine's Bucha region, where he documented a mass execution, gathering evidence to be later used to prosecute war crimes. Now he's turning his attention to documenting the global climate crisis for Spanish speakers with his newly formed Sonder Foundation. He's someone who always makes me feel inspired and who I'm very lucky to call my friend. It's Santi Palacios. Santi, welcome to La Portada. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi. Hello. Thank you. So for those who are first hearing about Sonder, tell us what it hopes to achieve. Well, Sonda is a non-profit media outlet specializing on um, visual journalism on the climate crisis. So what we are willing to achieve is to uh, go further in the producing of that visual journalism in showing the consequences of the climate crisis. We really believe, we believe strongly in that um, in the idea that there is a lack of um, visual journalism being produced on those consequences on the climate crisis. In terms of uh, nowadays, it seems that we need to see in order to believe, and we are not being able to see the consequences of what's going on. Uh, this not at all as strong as the uh, scientists are telling us about what's going on in the entire planet. So there are magazines, there are certain um, outlets working very hard and very well, I would say, 
on reporting on the climate crisis, but we want to become specialists since most of us are already visual journalists in um, going in producing in-depth uh, visual stories. Well, part of Saunders' tagline is see to understand. And I was wondering what was the first assignment or shoot that first exposed you to the climate crisis that made you understand initially at least? Well, in my case, it it really came uh, while I was studying sociology. I jumped from sociology uh, into journalism. And back then I was really impressed by the um, perspective of human ecology as a way to understand the world, to study the relationship between human beings and the environment. But from then on, one of my very first assignments in Bolivia, when I was uh, based in Bolivia, was a story on how the uh, the indigenous local Alamara populations need to migrate because of the um, um, the decrease on the uh, water streams and rivers arriving to the um, Lake Titicaca. They are not, and also the pollution that comes with those rivers that forces them to move from their homeland to the major cities of La Paz and El Alto. That was the very first story I was working on, climate crisis, and in that interesting perspective, which would be uh, climate migrations. I mean, that's one of the very things we are interested on, um, to jump from the idea that most of us have from the past decades, at the time when we look at the climate crisis and we only think in the in, in, in nature, we also want to think in that way, in how humans are affected in different ways, how you can understand migrations through that perspective of, of climate crisis. Well, it's a hard business making environmental documentaries that really hold the engagement of audiences these days. As we know, attention spans are getting smaller and smaller, especially if we're talking preventative measures, predictions, or about change that isn't tangible. How does your team intend to do it differently, apart from having such award-winning videographers, photographers, and writers on board? Well, that is a very good question, and we are working on it. We hope to manage or to be able to spend time producing, working on each story, and that's what really, uh, that's really something very difficult to achieve. To have a group of journalists focused on one single story, being able going deep into it, and being able to produce different narratives or new narratives, and or combine past and current and new future narratives in order to achieve those those goals. For example, one of the ones we are really um, willing to try is to work in the uh, comparative uh, to picture environmental problems or solutions that are happening in different environments and picture them every different month or every different year in order to show the evolution of that particular problem. I, we believe that that's a uh, that's one of the ways showing the evolution is one of the ways we are we managed to see something uh, to understand at least one of those problems. Mm. So for your first overseas assignment with Sonda, you and your team visited three megacities battling pollution. What lasting impression did that have on you? Well, for for this very first story and project we are going to publish, we worked in the Philippines, in Metro Manila, in the capital, but also in Jakarta and Delhi, in Indonesia and India. And this project is focused on life under extreme environmental pollution in three of the biggest cities in Asia, of the most populated cities in Asia. And it was really shocking to work there. 
uh, on the one hand, it was difficult, something very difficult to show, something very difficult to understand, pollution in, dark, in those terms. In the Philippines, we were working on plastic. Metro Manila is one of the cities dumping uh, the bigger amount of plastic into the oceans. In Jakarta, we work in the pollution of water, one of the most, one of the capitals with the most polluted water in the world. And New Delhi is the, the, has the most polluted air in the entire world. All those three, those three problems are really difficult to picture, are really difficult to understand through images. But that was what we were trying, and we were trying by doing to, to do so by getting to understand how those pollution problems affect the um, inhabitants of those cities. Uh, we could also explore the um, different ways in which they were able or capable to react against those pollution problems. In terms of this, this, all of this project started when, in a previous trip in 2018, um, an expert in, in air pollution in Delhi uh, told me that air pollution is the most democratic problem that we have because we all breathe the same air. I wanted to, to, to see if that was true or not. I wanted to explore that idea. And we, we've been working with people from different income in each of these cities, trying to understand if they were all being affected by pollution. And somehow we could see that, yeah, they were all affected, but not in the same way, because they didn't have the same tools to react against that pollution. Uh, an easy example would be how to explain that um, wealthy people from New Delhi are doing and even th thinking or even doing in migrating because of pollution. They can choose, they can move somewhere else, they can afford to live out of Delhi and travel time to time if they need to do so for job or visit relatives or whatever, while um, people from lower incomes can't even think in doing that. Wow. So maybe a democratic problem, but not a democratic solution at all. Well, I know covering these stories has made you super aware of what you're consuming. For instance, having had dinner with you, I know you're now hesitant about some seafood. Do you think people would be horrified to know how climate change and pollution is affecting what they're eating or what they're exposed to, even here in Spain? Uh, well, the amount of plastic dump, being dumped into the ocean is uh, something to take into account and and. And it's true. I mean, yeah, we, we, I really think we are not aware of it. I mean, one of the reasons why I was being hesitant to eat seafood, uh, for example, in, don't know, in, in Jakarta, that seafood that you can find there might not be coming from Jakarta Bay. But since I was working with um, water pollution every day and I was uh, entering the rivers and I was uh, interviewing the experts and they were telling me uh, how polluted that water is, uh, you really feel that uh, you should, you know, start taking care of what you consume. And here in Spain, it's pretty much the same thing. I mean, when you work at a local level, locals really know how the quality of waters are and, you know, where to go, what to do, what to eat and where to eat it. And and it's all about knowledge. That's why it's so important to produce that knowledge. And the way we can do it is by doing journalism. Exactly. So tell us what's next for Sonda. Well, right now we are working uh, on the edit of this project on environmental, on, on pollution in three mega cities in Asia. We will be publishing it really, really soon in the coming days. Afterwards, about the topics that could be, that, that could be, there are so many. Me, myself, I'm, uh, my, my goal, I would suggest wildfires. 
the consequences of wildfires. Fantastic. Well, Santi Palacios, thank you so much. I'm so happy we could find the time to talk today, and I'm very excited for our listeners to hear all about Sonda. Thank you. Thank you so much. Vale, thank you, Santi. <laughs> okay. He really is an amazing guy. He's won tons of awards. He's a trained sociologist. I'll link his TED Talk from a couple of years ago too. It's great. Yeah, he's super interesting. His photos are amazing. Um, Some of the really uh, striking images that come out of the Ukraine conflict were taken by Santi. And yeah, and good on him for um, for turning his attention to climate change, which let's face it, is pretty much what we should all be doing right now. Mm. And you can donate and watch all Sonder's content at sonderinternational.com. Also following them on social media too because they're organising events now and seeing the photos and images and visuals and hearing the stories behind them really engages you even more. So unless you are a Patreon listener, in which case you've got your spanter to look forward to at the end of the podcast, all that's left to do now this week is the News Roundup. Pedro Sánchez this week used Liz Truss as an example of how not to govern a country. The Spanish Prime Minister, or Mr Handsome as he is commonly known on Twitter, threw some unusually effective shade at his opposite number in the UK during a debate in Congress about tax cuts. Responding to criticism for his government's plan to ease the tax burden for those on lower incomes, Sánchez said the antiquated thing to do is to lower taxes on the rich. He then held up the cover of this week's Economist newspaper, which parodies Truss and her Chancellor Quasi Quateng and said, talk to your fellow Conservatives in England and ask them how you shouldn't run a country. Madrid Deputy Regional Premier Enrique Osorio is once again in the news for his controversial comments. Back in March, he got himself in hot water after joking about a report that said, in Madrid, there are three million people in poverty. Where are they? He asked at a press conference, doing a kind of comedy gesture, looking around the stage to try and find them. This time, he claimed that the families of the thousands of people who died in the region's care homes during the first wave of the coronavirus pandemic have got over it. The Popular Party-run regional government is blocking an investigation into its handling of those early days of the pandemic, while at the same time insisting that the central government, and in particular Podemos founder Pablo Iglesias, was actually in charge of care homes at that time. If that's the case, Lily, it is kind of hard to understand why they wouldn't want an investigation. Mm. And that's it from our second episode of La Portada Season 2. This episode was recorded on October 7th in Madrid City. Your hosts were Simon Hunter and me, Lily Mayers, and providing technical support and armchair punditry was Connor Doyle. Don't forget to get in touch. Our socials are at LaPortadaPod and our email is LaPortadaPod at gmail.com. You can also tweet us directly at Simon in Madrid and at Lily Mayers. Hasta la semana que viene. Hasta luego. Hasta luego.